But as consolidation hit the tech sector, the deal being offered to the musicians became indistinguishable from the deal being offered by music companies. And that's not because the music companies got better, it's because the tech sector got worse. Hi, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and this is Future Proof. So today we're diving deep into the digital realm with none other than Cory Doctorow. For those unfamiliar, Corey is a digital rights activist, a prolific novelist with over 20 books under his belt, and a key voice in the discourse around technology, monopolies, and the future of the internet. He's been at the forefront of the digital rights movement for two decades, co-created the Boing Boing blog, and has been a staunch advocate for a free and open internet. In our conversation, we'll explore the intricacies of platform growth, the economics behind tech monopolies, and the challenge of the modern digital landscape. Corey offers a unique perspective on the transformation of the internet from its golden age to what he terms the inshitification of the web. Great term. We'll also delve into the power dynamics between tech giants, the role of antitrust laws, and the implications for everyday users like you and me. So whether you're a tech enthusiast, an aspiring digital rights activist, or just curious about the future of the internet, this episode promises to be both enlightening and thought-provoking. Let's jump right in. So, Corey, uh, welcome to Future Proof. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I wanted to ask you, I know I had a little bit of this in the intro, but it's always fun to ask, who are you and what do you do on a day-to-day basis in your own words, and how do you define yourself? Well, my name's Corey Doctorow. I've been a digital rights activist for about 20 years, and I've been a novelist for about 20 years. I've written more than 20 books. Uh, These days, mostly I work on issues related to... um, Platform collapse, uh, the inshitification of the internet as everything good becomes bad and useless and terrible. And um, I am also writing lots of books. I have, uh, I came out of lockdown with eight books in production. Four of those are novels. Uh, then there's a short story collection, a graphic novel, and two nonfiction books. Uh, I've had uh, two of those come out so far, and then three more in the next eight months. Which is, I, I, I get, I think I probably write something like about a thousand words a day. And, um, you know, people are like, how do you do it? And I actually think of you as one of those people, yeah. which I don't know what your word count is per day, because I imagine you delete a lot of them. And, and but it's no. probably got to be pretty insane. No, when I'm working on a book, it's like 500 words a day on the book. And then I also write a blog every day. I've been a blogger for, again, more than 20 years. I was uh, one of the creators of the Boing Boing blog and wrote on that for 19 years. And then I left and started a project that has turned into sort of a daily essay called pluralistic.net. It's kind of a multi-platform experiment in trying to claw back the good internet from the bad platform-driven internet by uh, by keeping everything uh, kind of returning back to a site I manage, but syndicating by hand in native formats to a lot of different social media, basically anything Mark Zuckerberg doesn't own, and probably soon anything Elon Musk doesn't own as well. Well, that's a nice happy thought. And I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, looking forward on this uh, show generally, but I think you're probably a really good person to give us a little bit of a history uh, lesson. Uh, you know, some things that I am, you know, a little uh, more familiar uh, with respect to than the average person, but I think, you know, a lot of people just weren't necessarily paying attention from a macro perspective about how the internet got where it did. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe just even taking a step or 15 steps back, you know, what specifically makes, you know, Google and Facebook, 
and now it's meta, obviously, um, you know, what makes things like that sticky uh, for their users? And then where did they, you know, essentially start to go wrong and or not quite get evil, but uh, just, you know, turn into what they are now? Well, to understand technology and platform growth and the historic cycle of technology and how it's changed, there's three ideas from economics you really need to understand. The first one is probably uh, familiar to anyone who follows this stuff. It's network effects. A service enjoys network effects if it gets better, the more people use it. So, you know, the more AOL instant messenger users there are, the more reasons there are to get an AIM account. That's also true of Facebook. But, you know, it's also true of an iPhone, right? The more users there are, the more reasons there are to make apps. The more apps there are, the more reasons there are to become a user. Uh, And so you get this kind of, you know, virtuous cycle. And tech generally has enjoyed these incredible uh, network effects and, and have experienced explosive growth. But it's a double edged sword. There's also, the, the opposite of network effects, which is uh, what happens when you have low switching costs. Uh, so this is an ex- the next idea from economics people need to understand. The, uh, a service has uh, low switching costs if when you leave, you don't have to give anything up. So if, if you, you know, ditch your iPhone, all the media that's in Apple apps will stop playing. You'll lose it. And um, the apps themselves stop working. And you lose the ability to use Messenger to contact other Messenger users and enjoy all the features that Messenger has. Just all that stuff that we know we give up when we, when we leave an iPhone behind. If you leave Facebook behind, you lose all your friends. Uh, that's, I think, arguably a lot worse. Every service tries to engineer in these very high switching costs. But, you know, those switching costs are, are intrinsically low in technology that, that, Historically, digital technology has enjoyed very, very low switching costs because computers have this property of universality. Like the only computer that we know how to make is the universal computer, the Turing machine that can run every program that we know how to write. And what that means is someone can always write a uh, a program that will allow you to, say, take your iPhone apps and your iPhone media with you to another platform, to Android. The thing that stops people from doing that isn't the technology, it's the law. There is this sort of uh, whole group of laws, uh, we call them IP laws, it's things like um, non-compete and trademark and copyright, anti-circumvention, trade secrecy, tortious interference with contract, and so on. All of these things uh, stop people from building those technologies. So it's not the technology, it's not that the technical challenges stop people from opening up the walled gardens. It's the legal challenges that do. Yeah. And, and that's actually one thing that I wanted to ask you about. It almost seems to me, and, you know, please push back if I'm wrong, that if you have these network effects, then bit by bit, you have a system where you don't have to create a better social platform. You don't have to create necessarily a better search experience because it's just so onerous to take your data with you because you can take your data with you or your network. So, but that's that, yeah, but that's only if the switching costs are high. So, you know, if, if when Facebook started, it had this problem that everyone who wanted to use social media already had a MySpace account. And this is where we get into the third uh, idea from economics, which is the um, coordination costs. So if, if you and I want to leave Facebook, but we can't agree on where we should go next, or if 
I want to leave Facebook and you don't, or if we both want to leave Facebook, but there's a third person that's part of our social circle who won't leave, then we have these coordination costs where we have to all agree that it's time to leave and that we want to go somewhere else. And then we also have to undergo the switching costs of like reassembling our social graph when we get to the new service. And once, you know, you have your whole social graph on one service, you know, then, then the switching costs become very, very high, but you can attack them with technology. So again, back to Facebook in the days of MySpace, everybody had a MySpace account. So Facebook gave them a bot. And if you gave that bot your login and password, it would go to MySpace and it would log in as you and it would scrape all of the waiting messages in your inbox and it would put them in your Facebook Facebook inbox and you could reply to them there and it would push them back out to MySpace. And, you know, that's a, a way to kind of make the switching costs go away and obviate the coordination costs because you know you don't have to all agree that it's time to leave Facebook you know you can leave in one, you can leave in ones and twos and still stay in touch and again the thing that stops people from building that bot today as as a company called Power Ventures tried to do they tried to make a single dashboard that would let you look at your Facebook inbox and your LinkedIn inbox and your Twitter inbox and a bunch of other inboxes all in one place so that you could just manage it without having to log into each of those services and without having to kind of be beholden to them. Facebook sued them into like a molten wreckage. And so, you know, what's changed with technology over the decades is not that it got harder to build these tools that make it easy for new market entrants to offer users a way to escape from a walled garden and go somewhere else, it's that it's become illegal to do it. It's, it's, it's a really interesting point. And I think that one thing that, you know, again, not everybody necessarily thinks about, but, uh, but the truth is if you created, if you break, basically broke, let's say Instagram into 150 different parameters and you found something that delivered better on each and every one of those parameters, uh, tomorrow, it would still be very difficult for that to be successful, of course, because, you know, your, your network is there and it's very, you know, of, of course, once there's momentum, you know, on a new platform, that's a whole nother story, but it just strikes me as, I guess you could say that it becomes a little bit of an, almost like an anti-competitive thing um, from a regulatory standpoint. And and I don't know if this, you know, comes into it at all, but you wind up having an issue where, you know, are the regulators, of course, they're paying attention to some extent, but what's really happening in a practical sense to push uh, against this? It doesn't seem like there's that much at the very least uh, from a you know, stateside perspective. So I, I, I couldn't disagree more. I think that we are in a, the, the moment in which we are getting more enforcement and more action than at any time in the last 40 years. So one thing you need to understand is that 40, up until about 40 years ago, up until the Reagan era, the theory of antitrust that the courts used was this theory called harmful dominance that basically said, if a company gets big enough, it just has too much power, that we shouldn't let companies use um, predatory pricing. So that's when you use access to capital markets to sell things below cost in order to stop other people from entering the market. So think of, um, you know, uh, the $32 billion that Uber lit on fire to put taxis out of business and, and, you know, stall investment in public transit for a decade and also banning mergers. So think about Google. Uh, historically, a company wasn't allowed to merge with a major competitor and it wasn't allowed to roll up a lot of new startups in the hopes of uh, turning them into a, um, a, a kind of impenetrable wall around the business. 
And Google, you know, 25 years ago made a really good search engine and then nothing else. Uh, you know, it's funny because we think of Google as like the Willy Wonka factory. It's got all these moonshot technologies, but every successful technology Google has, they bought from someone else, right? Their video stack, their ad stack, their mobile stack, their network management stack, their customer service stack, their maps, their navigation, their collaboration. These are all other people's companies that they bought. Now they're very good at operationalizing them. And that's kind of table stakes for any monopolist, right? You can't be John D. Rockefeller running Standard Oil unless you can run a big operation and, you know, buy up nascent startups and roll them into your operation. But the things that they invent in house, whether that's, you know, Sidewalk Labs Smart Cities or their RSS Reader Google Reader or Google Plus or Google Video they just universally failed. A lot of those have, have bombed. But by the way, I, I don't think I actually disagree with you all that much. I, I think it's a matter of they were able to generally see something that was going to be impactful to their uh, bottom line. Oh, no, or no, no, no. That's just wrong. No, no, no. no? Uh, Google, Google, every company before Google tried to buy its way to dominance. We had in the era of the robber barons that the normal practice was for companies to roll up their nascent competitors. And until Reagan, that was illegal. And after Reagan, it became increasingly legal. So Reagan, uh, the last uh, big antitrust, successful antitrust was the breakup of AT&T. But then Reagan decided not to uh, stop the broken up version, uh, uh, many companies of AT&T from merging with each other again. So obviously that the, the benefits of that petered out pretty quick. There was the attempt to try and uh, do an antitrust enforcement against Microsoft that uh, failed because Microsoft appealed and appealed until George Bush took office and then he dropped the case. And then since then, we have operated on the Reagan theory of antitrust. And the Reagan theory of antitrust, it's something called consumer welfare. And it's that monopolies are efficient and should be encouraged, that mergers are good for the public because they create efficiencies from large firms, and that we cannot get the benefits of these brilliant business geniuses, unless we let them buy out all their competition or use predatory pricing to force them out of the market. You know, think of Amazon when diapers.com refused to sell to Amazon. Amazon sold diapers below cost. They lost a hundred million dollars, which was, you know, their investors' money, and diapers.com folded up. And then everybody whom Amazon tried to buy after that just sold to them because they knew what was coming if they didn't sell it. So Amazon was able to buy Zappos and a bunch of other companies, Audible and so on. Which, by the way, they, in fairness, from an investor standpoint, they burn a lot of investor money, arguably in terms of the investor's good, I want to say, like, uh, but, but not for the consumers, because of course, then they can, uh, when, once you control the market, then you, you set the price. Well, sure. I mean, this is where um, antitrust law comes from. Uh, the trusts that antitrust were, was created to deal with, the trusts were these businesses. I mean, you, we all know what like a trust is when you, you've got like a land trust where a bunch of people come together and they buy some land and then they hold it in trust and they say like no one can log the land and you have to let the owls alone and so on. These trusts, the way that they worked is that like everyone who worked in it, who owned businesses in a sector, like all the railroad companies or all the coal companies or all the whiskey companies would come together and they would all sell their companies to a trust. And then they would become beneficiaries of the trust. They would have shares in the trust equal to the size of their business when it was when when the trust was formed. And then a board of trustees, which were these business people who nominally had been competitors, 
the board of trustees would come together and they would become what what John Sherman, who was uh, Tecumseh Sherman's brother, he was the author of the the Sherman Act, the first antitrust act. They became uh, autocrats of trade. Right. So they they became uh, he said, you know, uh, uh, that they were like the kings that America had thrown off, that they had the power to structure how we lived, how we worked, what we consumed, whether or not we could start a business or run a business. All of that became their domain. Right. Like if you had a coal company and the railroad trust didn't like you, they wouldn't carry your coal to market. They wouldn't buy your coal for the railroad. You would go out of business and then you would be bought out by the trust. Right. So there was just no way to operate in this environment unless the trust let you operate. And they would only let you operate to the extent that you were given enough to either survive or fail slowly enough that some other sucker showed up to provide whatever it was you had been supplying to them. So all of this. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I I was just going to say, I think it's interesting. One thing that nobody ever seems to talk about, I don't think enough, is that when you get enough market power, then of course, your lobbying power, you know, in uh, DC becomes so immense, that in some ways, it's that that to me is one of the biggest things is, you know, a new market entrant doesn't have that level of connection to be able to explain. I remember, uh, of course, you do too, when Facebook ran a whole entire, I think it was still Facebook, when they ran a whole entire campaign against Apple because of the app tracking transparency stuff. And they were trying to mm-hmm. say basically, like, we're the good guys here, you know, and obviously they didn't win that argument, but at least they've got the ability to launch that type of campaign and also to do things like that to, to keep new market entrants out to lobby against, let's say, TikTok, for instance. Well, and and you're missing something that's even more salient here, which is that when a sector is disorganized, right, when there's like 100 companies in a sector, then they can't even agree on like how to cater their annual meeting. But once a sector dwindles to like five companies, they can all agree on what their lobbying priorities are. And because they don't really compete anymore, they have a lot of money to spend to make those priorities into a reality. And, you know, that's... um, that's how we get things like uh, the copyright wars, right? Where you had uh, the tech firms, which were, you know, much uh, larger. They had a much larger turnover and nominally should have been much more powerful than um, the entertainment companies. You know, they, they, their market cap was much bigger and so on. But at the time, tech was much less organized, right? Tech was still diverse. It was still composed of competing firms that didn't like each other very much. And they couldn't agree on anything, let alone their lobbying priorities. And, you know, whenever um, Congress proposed something that was just, you know, sort of batshit, uh, there would always be some tech company that would say, well, maybe if I can do this, then I'll be the sort of chosen supplier to the entertainment sector and I'll be able to fence out all my rivals. So I'm going to do this and I'm going to uh, uh, do this in a way that makes it hard for the other people in my sector to make the convincing case that this is a crazy thing to do. Now, as tech has become more concentrated, not only has tech been able to uh, put the entertainment sector in a corner, but also the benefits that the public realized from a diverse and competing tech sector have also dwindled, right? Like if a company can lock you in, using law that prevents prevents interoperability and by buying out competitors before you can get to them. Remember when Mark Zuckerberg bought Instagram and his CFO asked why they were giving a billion dollars to this small company, he got up literally in the middle of the night and sent an email to his CEO, to his CFO saying, we're going to lose everything unless 
we can stop people from defecting to a company that they like more. So we have to buy this company to stop them from, from defecting to it, right? So that's the uh, process by which we get locked in. And when a company doesn't have to worry about losing your business, it doesn't have to treat you well. And that goes also for suppliers. So back in the post-Napster days, you had all these tech services popping up, including things like, you know, Pandora, but also YouTube Music and so on. And they all offered musicians a, a good deal. In fact, often a better deal than they were going to get, you know, say with, uh, uh, with that from the labels. iTunes was kind of a godsend for independent musicians when it kicked off. But as consolidation hit the tech sector, the deal being offered to the musicians became indistinguishable from the deal being offered by music companies. And that's not because the music companies got better. It's because the tech sector got worse. So you have Spotify, which was basically formed as a joint venture with the three major record labels. Uh, Sony, Universal, and Warner own 70% of all the sound recordings ever made. And... Um, then you have YouTube Music, and both of them are just incredibly bad for musicians, and in nearly identical ways, right? It's 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 really hard to overstate just how awful both companies are to musicians, but also how common their awfulness is. Well, I, I mean, it it goes back to the whole entire idea of how many how many musicians out there that can't necessarily collude to get better treatment from the labels, and then there's obviously a ton of labels, and then they're trying to you know, to play with now a market that only has a few major uh, streamers in it. Uh, so, so this is the this is the collective action problem we were discussing earlier, right? But instead of it being the problem of you and your friends trying to agree on whether it's time to leave Facebook, it's entertainment companies and tech companies being able to agree on screwing musicians and musicians not being able to agree on not doing otherwise. So you're speaking to me today. Uh, I'm at home in Burbank. I'm, you know, in the neighborhood of Universal, Warner, and Disney. And I've been out on the picket line this week. Uh, we have actors and uh, writers out picketing right now. They're trying to solve that collective action problem. Their bosses, the AM, uh, AMPTP, they don't have that collective action problem because they all agree that we should not get paid. And so for them, it's very easy for them to, to come to a, a single set of terms and to make those terms a reality. And that is the end of part one of our conversation. We've got a little bit more coming to you in just a few days. Uh, so be sure to be on the lookout. Thanks again to Corey for making the time. And if you like what you just heard and this is your first time here, be sure to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, the choice is yours. And if you're a longtime listener, please remember to rate and review Future Proof as that's the number one way we get this show in front of people just like you. Got a burning question you uncovered on a future episode? Go to futureproofshow.com to submit. Special thanks this week to producer Jason Stack. Once again, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and you've been listening to Future Proof. Future Proof.